0: Hello. Welcome to the legend of Robin Hood of Sherwood. Chapter 1. In which Robin Hood is only mentioned at the end. King Arthur had come and gone. The golden age of Britain was a distant memory when King Alfred the Great came to the throne in 871. His three brothers had reigned before him. As the youngest, he'd never expected to become king, but become king he did. King Arthur had spent much of his early reign fighting against the Saxons. He scored a great victory over them at the famous Battle of Baden and kept these Germanic invaders at bay for the rest of his time on the throne. When he and Mordred fell at the Battle of Camlann, though, all this good work was undone. With the forces of Britain almost completely destroyed, the men from Central Europe swept in. Before too long, the Britons were pushed to the margins of their former lands, the places we now know as Wales and Devon and Cornwall. The Saxons, and their close cousins the Angles, took over most of the southern and eastern part of the island of Britain. There they formed small kingdoms, which then battled with each other and swallowed each other up. In the south, the Saxons held sway. Wessex, Sussex and Essex came into being, the home kingdoms of the West, South and East Saxons. The Angles settled in Anglia, the far eastern parts of the island, over time, the greater part of the island was named for these invaders. England came into being. Despite being named after the Angles, England was soon dominated by Saxon leaders. Alfred's father, Æthelwulf, was the son of the King of Wessex. He conquered the local kingdoms of Sussex and Kent, and then inherited the throne of Wessex from his father. Four of his sons succeeded him, the youngest of which was Alfred. He was soon involved in a battle with those other famous invaders, the Vikings. Alfred's wars against the Danes were successful, and he was able to settle down to a relatively peaceful later reign. The whole Saxon population of England saw Alfred as their overlord. His son-in-law was the King of Mercia, so his influence there was understandable, but the other Saxons had no reason to support him, other than the fact that he was good. Although Alfred never called himself King of England, he is usually recognised as the first man to unite the kingdom. The kingdom eventually became one under the watchful eye of Athelstan the Glorious. He defeated the last Viking stronghold of York in 927 and began to make England great. The Saxons ruled the land for the next 130 years, except for a small interlude of Danish rule under King Canute and his sons. While the Danish king was on the throne, the man who was the rightful king, sought refuge in Normandy. St Edward the Confessor was a pious man, who also had a reputation as a fine soldier. Pressure was put on the Danes who had taken the kingdom, and Harder Canute, son of Canute, named Edward as his successor. In 1042, Edward became King of England. The help he had been given by the Normans had allowed him to retake his throne for the Saxons. He wasn't to know that this help would come back to bite his kingdom. Edward ruled the kingdom for 24 years, but he had a problem. He had no children and there was no obvious successor. He wasn't a particularly strong man and he had come to rely far too much on one of his lords, a man named Godwin. Increasingly he became dominated by this powerful baron who clearly had designs on the top job. He was no younger than the king though, so the chances of him outliving Edward were slim. Fortunately he had a few sons, their chances were a lot greater but Edward's Norman connections had other ideas. Sometime, maybe when he was seeking refuge with them, maybe sometime later, Edward the Confessor had promised his kingdom to somebody else. Godwin may have spent his time intriguing for his sons, but there was every chance this would not pay off. Nope, the throne of England had been claimed. As far as he was concerned, William, Duke of Normandy, was to be the next King of England. The deal was done. It was not up for discussion. In 1064, Edward the Confessor confirmed his decision. He sent an envoy over to Normandy to tell the Duke that it was definitely on, no problem at all. He was absolutely, without a shadow of doubt, going to be the next king. It was a bit of a puzzle, though. The man he sent to confirm the decision was Harold, son of Godwin, known rather sensibly as Harold Godwinson. Still, it seems that he did his job, and when Edward died a couple of years later... William, Duke of Normandy, assumed he was about to march to London and simply sit on the throne of England. He was in for a rude awakening, and he would not be pleased. The Saxon kingdom was managed by earls and barons. These powerful men and their families owned the land, worked it, and employed the locals. They supplied men and money to the king whenever necessary, and the king relied on their support. One of these noblemen, in the time of Edward the Confessor, was the Earl of Huntingdon. So, as 1065 came to an end, King Edward lay dying. The dying king was no more resolute than the healthy one. He'd promised the throne to William of Normandy, but his closest advisor was Harold Goodwinson. Before he died on January 5th 1066, Edward the Confessor entrusted the Kingdom of England to Harold. We all know what happened next. Harold marched north and defeated the armies of Harold Hadrada and Tostig at Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire. Then he heard that William of Normandy had landed near Hastings, come to collect the prize that should have been his. Harold marched back south to take him on, confident of victory. A day or two later he was dead, although probably not with an arrow in his eye. William of Normandy became William the Conqueror and England had a Norman king. The new king was keen to reward his supporters and he looked around his new kingdom for fine lands and castles. The Saxon lords didn't have a lot of say in the matter, One of the lords whose estate was seized and handed over to Norman Barons was that of the Earl of Huntingdon. His family were stripped of their titles and pushed out of their castle. Their cattle and sheep were taken, and their workmen were enslaved by the invaders. The Earl and his family settled on a farm on the outskirts of Loxley village, near the edge of a dense, large, wooded area near the city of Nottingham. This wood was called Sherwood Forest. The Normans solidified their rule. William died and the throne passed to his sons, first that hot-headed William Rufus who was killed in a hunting accident in the New Forest. Some think it may not have been an accident. William was succeeded by his younger brother, Henry. King Henry I was an unpleasant and scary man, but he had a sense of fair play. His sense of justice allowed him to put in place new laws which were fairer to the Saxons. When he died, the succession was disputed, In the end, the crown was seized by Stephen of Blois. Stephen's reign was turbulent and difficult for everyone. There were years of civil war between Stephen and Henry's daughter, Matilda, which ruined whole counties and left men throughout England starving and desperate. The Norman barons grew increasingly independent and built even more imposing castles. The English people suffered greatly. The Civil War, known quite accurately as the Anarchy, only ended when Stephen adopted Matilda's son Henry as his heir. A year or so later he was dead, and the young Henry was King of England. Not only that, he was ruler of much of France through his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine. King Henry II was an energetic and good leader. He curbed the power of the barons and the common people breathed a little more easily. At last they thought the bad times were gone. This king may be a Norman, but he appeared to believe that every one in his kingdom deserved to be treated equally in the eyes of the law. He ruled with an iron hand, and the barons were too scared to try any form of rebellion. Apart from a small spat with the Archbishop of Canterbury, one Thomas a Becket, his long reign was successful, and to a certain extent, happy. The descendants of the Earl of Huntingdon prospered on their farm near Loxley. During the reign of Henry the Second, the incumbent owner of Loxley Hall had a son, he named the son Robert, but, as there were many Saxon Roberts, he was known to his friends and family as Robin. Robin of Loxley grew up as an only son, knowing he would inherit his father's lands and run the farm. He was educated in the ways of the farmer, but also in the skills of the warrior. There was always a chance he would be called up to serve the king as a military man, and his father wanted to ensure there was a chance he would survive. By the time he was 16, Young Robin was an expert bowman and a very fine swordsman. Not many years later, he was Robin of Loxley. His parents had both died, and Robin took on the management of the small estate. Meanwhile, good King Henry was having a torrid time with his own family. He ruled lands which stretched from the north of England down to northern Spain. He also had four legitimate sons who survived to be adults. The eldest, Henry, became dissatisfied with his lack of Power as his father got older, and he rebelled. He was supported by his younger brother, Geoffrey. Fighting on the side of the king were his two younger sons, Richard and John. Young Henry died of a fever, and Geoffrey was persona non grata. Thus, Richard became the heir to the throne of England. Richard was a mighty man. He was a valiant and chivalrous knight who loved to fight for God and for his country. He was loved by the common people of England, Saxon and Norman alike. All were delighted that he would be their next king. The bad times were definitely over. King Henry II died in 1089 and Richard rose to the throne. Within a few months though, he was away in the Holy Land fighting for God. The people of England yearned for his return, but expected that King Henry's laws would protect them while their beloved new young king was away. How wrong they were! King Richard left his brother John in charge while he was away. John was as evil and weak as Richard was good and strong. He wasn't content simply to be his brother's regent. Oh no, Prince John wanted the throne for himself. He gave lands and honours to his favourite nobles and knights, trying to win followers by giving away pieces of his kingdom. John was not interested in fairness and justice at all. He was interested in Prince John, and Prince John alone. His friends were all Normans. The Saxons became second-class citizens again. The bad times were back. All over the country, great castles went up. It was a free-for-all. If a baron wanted a farm, then he made up some accusation against its owner, had the poor man thrown into prison, and seized the property. The church was no better. Greedy abbots would use the unjust laws to their advantage. All over the country, they seized property for the church from its rightful owner. The barons had the power of life and death on their estates. Any man who worked on their land was subject to the will of the lord. They could be punished by imprisonment or even death at the whim of their master. The forest of Sherwood was no exception. The landowners and the common folk there lived in fear, just as they did all over the country. Near the forest stood the abbey of St Mary's, whose abbot was a particularly nasty and land-grabbing tyrant, He appointed a local nobleman called Sir Guy of Gisborne as his steward. He was the agent of the abbot and he loved his job. Kicking honest men off their land was his idea of fun. Not only did he adore his work, he was very good at it. His exploits soon came to the attention of the Sheriff of Nottingham. The Sheriff was the man who kept order and administered justice in the cities and surrounding areas and so the Sheriff of Nottingham ruled Sherwood Forest in the name of the King except that he didn't the sheriff had been appointed by the regent and he was prince john's man through and through he'd had to pay for the privilege but it was worth it even after giving the prince the money he demanded there was plenty left over as the people grew poorer and poorer the sheriff grew richer and richer one of the harshest of all the new laws was that ruling who was allowed to kill the game which freely roamed the forest all the deer and wild boar were property of the king and it was illegal to kill them Now this had been the case since the times of good King Henry, but in his day it hadn't mattered. The prosperity and equity of the day negated the need to kill the king's deer. There was food enough for all. Now that Prince John's henchmen were in charge though, there wasn't nearly enough for everyone. In order to survive, the forest dwellers needed food that ran wild. A deer could feed a family for weeks. The temptation was too great to resist and many men risked being punished by taking a deer to feed his loved ones. The punishment was severe. The first time a man was caught taking one of the king's beasts, he was likely to have his right hand cut off, or, at the very least, his bow fingers removed. For a second offence, a man could expect to have his eyes gouged out. The third time, and the punishment was death. Sometimes men were executed for a first or second offence, depending on the whim of the local sheriff. For the men of Sherwood this was perfectly possible, as the Sheriff of Nottingham was particularly cruel and bloodthirsty. When a man was executed, his wife and children were turned out of their homes and left to starve by the roadside. So when a man died, often his whole family died too. Only if there were relatives who still had homes did they have any chance of surviving. But still, the men of Sherwood took the deer. They'd been robbed of everything by the followers of Prince John and they had no choice. As time went on, killing the king's deer became even more dangerous. A warden was appointed to ensure the game was not taken. He had bands of men called foresters to help him. They patrolled the forest and villages, and if there was any evidence a deer had been killed, the suspect was arrested and questioned, often tortured, until he confessed. Saxon and common Norman alike longed for the reappearance of King Richard. Surely when the great and just man returned the laws would be repealed and they could live in peace and plenty once more. Men, women and children prayed for the safe return of their beloved monarch. While they hoped and prayed though the opportunists grew fatter. The Norman barons and the corrupt churchmen ground the poor into lower depths and the starvation and disease became more frequent. Life just grew harder. But Richard wasn't likely to come back. Rumours circulated he'd been captured and that Prince John wouldn't pay the ransom. Despair and fear pervaded England. Nobody could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Slowly, as the hope ebbed away, the people became resigned to their fate. Nothing, it seemed, could relieve the misery. On the edge of the forest of Sherwood, a young man pondered the fate of the people of England. Robin of Locksley still had his land and he still had his farm. He still had his friends and he still employed his labourers. He'd managed not to break the king's laws. He knew though that the Abbot of St Mary coveted his lands and he also knew the Sheriff of Nottingham was wary of him. You see, Robin had a sense of fair play. He was a friend of the poor and he hated injustice. He particularly hated the horrible game laws which caused men, women and children to starve. Often he talked of treating all men the same, of equal justice for the rich and for the poor. It was just talk. The reality seemed impossible but even talk was dangerous. And nobody was safe. Spies were everywhere. News of Robin of Loxley's views reached the ear of the sheriff. So Robin had enemies. He hadn't broken the law, but he hadn't needed to. The abbot and Sir Guy of Gisborne wanted his land. The sheriff wanted him to shut his mouth. All Robin wanted was justice. But justice and law are not the same thing. Something would have to give. Next time... Something gives. If you've enjoyed this first episode of The Legend of Robin Hood of Sherwood, then please go to the website for the podcast, www.mythandhistory2.podbean.com. If you'd like to give me any feedback or just ask any questions, then you can write to me at mythandhistorygmail.com at or find me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. If you do get the chance, I'd also be very grateful for a good review on iTunes. Also, please go to www.historypodcasters.com. There, you'll find links to some other really great podcasts, and you'll also find the History Collage. This is a show where a group of history podcasters, including me, present short segments on a theme. It really is great fun and worth a listen. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.